This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the all-star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. It's now time for another edition of A's Unfiltered here on A's Cast. And this is going to be all about the A's on this one. We're going to start with our buddy from the MLB Network. Love having him on. Former A, Carlos Pena. Then we're going to hear from the closer, Liam Hendricks. And then the former all-star, Bip Roberts from NBC Sports California. And then we have our weekly visit every single Wednesday on A's Cast Live with the face of the franchise, Ray Fossey. But Carlos Pena wasn't an A for long. But he understands how the A's do business. He understands the Tampa Bay Rays. And he was a pretty good player. And he's turned into a very good broadcaster. Here is Carlos Pena from MLB Network. Carlos, it's great having you on the program once again. Thanks for coming on. We truly appreciate it. Chris, it's always a pleasure, man. Always fun talking ball with you. Yeah, and this is a great release for our, our, our fan base and for all the Major League Baseball fans here in Northern California. Obviously, being a former A, you played here, you know the area, so it's great to have you on. And one key question is, you know, we've seen this before with, like, work stoppages, but for players, and when you're told to stay inside, what do you do as a hitter? What do you do as a pitcher? Because you gotta, you got to still train and be ready for once they say, hey, it's time to start playing again. Isn't that the most um, challenging thing that the, the players are facing right now? As far as the profession is concerned, of course. First, you want to make sure your family is healthy and safe. You want to make sure you're healthy and safe. But then it's like, okay, how do I stay ready? Because we expect that we're going to be playing baseball hopefully sooner than later. So – how do you stay ready? Well, this is the time where you get reacquainted, Chris, with those things you used to do when you were younger. You go back to those minimalist ways and uh, get reacquainted with the jump rope. You know, get reacquainted with just going uh, a jump place, you know, doing jumping jacks, you know, stretches. And you're like, really? I mean, after I've been through using all this uh, technology and all, all these things that have helped me, uh, now I have to go back to jumping rope? And the answer is yes. Use it as a refresher. Use it as, as something just bringing you back to your roots. And it's almost good for the soul and the mind. So I think that's what players need to focus on, going back to that minimalist approach. Yeah, you got to fall in love with the batting tee. Maybe your wife is doing soft toss to you into a net. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You know what, Chris? Let me tell you. One of the things that people usually say, oh, players, you hear them say that all the time. I do. I'm just going to keep doing what got me here. Well, 
Now we really have to, you know, walk the talk, you know, yes, let's do what got you there. For me, it was hitting popcorn kernels. It, it, just as simple as that. And I kid you not, even in the big leagues, even when I was in, in, in Oakland, I used to go, go underneath the bleachers and I used to have one of my friends, he was a bad boy at that time, to toss me popcorn kernels. That's what I did when I was a kid. And I didn't stop doing it when I was in the big league. So get reacquainted with those little drills that you used to do with your dad in the backyard, um, you know, dry swings. For me, hitting popcorn, man, that, that got me ready. So get back to the basics. You know, one of the things, I, I love your energy. I love your passion uh, on MLB Network. When did you think, you know, I don't know what you were when you were playing, but when did you go, you know what, this TV thing, this is for me. No question. When, when did you know that TV was going to be good for you? <laughs> you know, you know, it's so funny. Even just today, I was thinking about that. I'm like, wow, when I was younger, because I was walking upstairs and I very rarely go by that room. It's, it's weird. You know, my, my wife made this beautiful memorabilia room and I rarely go in there. I don't know why, maybe because I'll get nostalgic, nostalgic about my career. I don't know why. But I walked by there last night, walked up there again this morning, and I'm reading all these articles, and I'm like, wow, I was a very driven young man. And, and I almost wanted to give myself a hug, you know, in a, in a sense, because I love that about the young me. You know, I, I, was, I, I always wanted to read, to get better at English, to, to be eloquent, even though it was my second language. I didn't just want to speak it. Um, I, I wanted to dominate it. I wanted to learn new vocabulary. I'm playing baseball. I don't need to speak English if you, you know, per se, right? I just need to hit the ball, right? And play defense, hit home runs. Well, now I look back and I'm like, wow, I'm glad I cared about, you know, educating myself, you know, in a different language and learning it and, and mastering it. And I continue to do so, uh, reading books, reading history, reading you know, trying to do the best I could. Now I look back, I'm like, wow, I'm glad I did that. At the time, maybe it looked kind of silly, um, but now I'm happy that I did that. I didn't think I was going to be working on TV, Chris, to be honest. Um, but, but now I see that every little bit, that, that, that time that I put in an effort that I put in, every seed that I, you know, planted, I am now reaping the rewards of that. So, so I'm, I'm very pleased. I'm very happy and grateful that I stuck with it. You know, I think about your career, and obviously you were in Oakland for part of the Moneyball year. So when you came up is when analytics is starting to blossom. And then, of course, you played till, all the way till 2014, so your whole career was in the analytics world. Have you been watching any of the replays of the old games on your network? And when you look at like baseball in the seventies compared to like when you played, just how different the game is from yesteryear to what the era you played in. Oh, 100%. I, I think that's a practice that, uh, that all, all of us should do, right? Because as time passes, we get kind of, you know, there's a paradigm shift that occurred around that time that I was with the open eight, Right. And eventually now it has, you know, it's solidified. And in this moment it has solidified into an age where everything is computerized. Every single stat is out there. Advanced technology being used in the game where the game has become less predictable than ever before, which it's a shame in a way because the beauty of this game is, is that it is unpredictable. But now you see the shifts that are being played. Uh, you see how teams are making decisions based on analytics, 
not necessarily human scouting. Um, and I think that's, you know, when we go to one extreme, um, in, in this case, is that analytics extreme, the sabermetrics, I think it takes a little bit of, of the essence of the game away. And I think it hurts the game of baseball. So, like I told you earlier about how guys are getting reacquainted with basic drills and things like that, I think it's a good exercise for all of us to look at those games in the 70s, in the 80s, when baseball was just kind of like, here's the baseball, try to hit it, instead of these advanced scouting reports that we now see and people getting pitched to their weaknesses. And you know what I'm saying? And just kind of like utilizing all these um, numbers to help um, their, their, their cause. So I loved the fact that when I look at the 70s and 80s games, there is this element of surprise. You never know what's going to happen. You don't know what might happen. The, 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 the weakest hitter in the lineup can beat you with one swing. Um, and you see the plays being made because people are playing straight up. I don't know. I kind of, I kind of missed those days. You know what I mean? There, no doubt about it. And you may be one of the best guys to answer this question because you spent time in Chicago. You spent time in Detroit, Boston. Those are big markets. And then you spent time in Oakland and you spent time in Tampa and really the best years of your career. You had monster years in Tampa. I look at Tampa and Oakland. They're like mere images of each other. They don't have a ton of money. They have all these obstacles. But Billy Bean and David Forrest don't use excuses. They want to win. They want to be in the playoffs. What was it like playing in Oakland for a short period of time, but then playing in Tampa where you knew you didn't have the money of the Red Sox, you knew you didn't have the money of the Yankees, but you guys were going to try and be smarter, more efficient, and win games what is it like playing for the little underdog versus playing with like the big boys in a big market? Aha, that's a great question because we were just talking about, hey man, let's just go out there and flex our muscles, right? And play baseball and, and see what happens. Whoever's the best players, you know, whoever got the best players uh, win. Um, and, and, and that's it. Well, in Oakland and in Tampa Bay, you know, we're talking about going to extremes, right? I'm not saying that Oakland and Tampa Bay have gone to extremes, but they have most definitely used the analytics and the way they analyze players and the way they evaluate players and the value of the players and the way they, they fabricate their lineups and the way they put together the teams. They've done it in such a way that they have yielded success. Now, both of these teams are, yes, at both ends of the spectrum as far as, uh, you know, North America is concerned, East Coast and West Coast, but they're pretty much dancing to the same sheet of music. You know, it's, it's about, you know, I'm going to get the right player for the right value, and then I am going to maximize their potential until a Christ for mercy. I mean, that's, that's basically their mentality and their approach, and they have been able to achieve that. I kind of love those stories because I think, um, you know, contrary to – you know, popular, you know, belief is, is that, okay, these guys have just utilized numbers. No, they, they, they've done a pretty balanced uh, approach where, man, there's some pretty good personalities. There's good chemistry in that ball club. Yes, there's great uh, um, synergy as far as the talent of the players is concerned. However, talking about the A's of 2002, for example, with, when all this sabermetric wave started, um, and how successful the A's were, and I was part of that ball club for a little while. And then you see the 2008 race, you know, that started in 2007, being the worst team in baseball, and all of a sudden became the best team in baseball, seemingly snapping their fingers. Um, there was a process, you know, the pieces were in place, but it finally came together and they succeeded. 
there is method to this madness, but it's not extremist. It's not one extreme and going to the other. Those teams that are able to strike the perfect balance are the ones that win. And the Oakland A's and the Tampa Bay Rays seem to have that formula down pat. You know, going if we're going to have a shortened season, you know, there's been rumors July 1st, whatever the date is, 100 games, 80 games, whatever they're able to get in. Things have things dramatically change. You know, you had the you had these teams that were the favorites when you start thinking about the Dodgers and you think about the Yankees and I'll throw the A's in there and you can throw in the Minnesota Twins and certain teams that that still the Houston Astros, you know, you're thinking these are the favorites. But when you're only playing like 100 games or 80 games, it's like anything can happen. I mean, I think it brings more teams into the mix. What do you think a shortened season will be like for these teams, and especially for underdogs? Yeah, this is uh, actually, I think, you know, in the midst of all this trouble, you know, we have so many negative news around the world, you know, but we're going to be talking about baseball, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shed a little bit of light, a little bit of positive light into into all this darkness, man. When baseball comes back, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back with a force. It's going to come back with, with, a, with, with understanding the responsibility that, that, that we bear as baseball players, as baseball industry, to bring back normalcy to uh, you know, America, to the world, to Latin America that loves baseball so much, and you know, go all around the globe. And look, it's going to come out just uh, you know, on a full sprint. And a sprint it is. It's 100 games. And I love that about, for example, the wild cards and – and the, and the postseason, that really it's about a team getting hot. And whoever gets hot, it's able to go up and, and get into, uh, late into the postseason. Now, we're not talking about five games here. We're talking about 100 games. So it's still a very big sample size. But it's 62 less games. 62. I mean, we're talking about, you know, a, a big chunk of the whole entire season that's going to be taken away. So all of a sudden – hey, guys, let's play good baseball here, and we may have a shot. There are some, te- some teams there that I think are going to surprise. And I got my eye on, Chris, on, on the White Sox. I mean, that's a team that intrigues me because of all their additions. You know, last year um, you could see that they were kind of moving in the right direction. You see Moncada making good strides, and then you see them acquire, you know, pretty good players, Kaiko, Grandal, Masara. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, man, Masara with that swing in that ballpark. How about Edwin Encarnacion in that ballpark? And then Gio Gonzalez, who's able to get healthy. I'm, I'm thinking the White Sox might, might come out really, really strong. Yes, the Twins are in there. We can't forget about the Indians. But I think the team that's going to surprise us the most is going to be the White Sox. But in reality, this is a great opportunity for any ball club to go ahead and get off the gates hot, and you got a shot. I, I think you're dead right. And, you know, the thing that we've been talking about here on A's Cast Live, and we'll end with this, is once baseball gets back, it's going to be so popular. Even people who really don't watch baseball on a regular basis are going to be jonesing for live content. And this is an opportunity for baseball to get back to being our national pastime because baseball has always been there for us through tragedies and, 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 and through horrific events. If baseball can get back playing and help us heal, it'll just be great for our sport. 100%. You're dead on right, uh, Chris. Look, I, I remember 2001. I remember exactly where I was when the Twin Towers got attacked, and uh, that was a dreadful day. 
in the history of the United States of America and the world. I, I was in San Francisco. It was early morning. I was playing for the Texas Rangers. This is a year before I, I, I became an Oakland A, and we didn't play baseball for a few days. You know, everything stopped, and rightfully so. But then all of us understood the responsibility that lied on our shoulders to just bring back hope to the American people, to bring back just a little bit, a sense of normalcy back to, to society and, and to, to America, to Americans, to baseball fans. And baseball is that constant. It's like a lifeline for, for this culture, uh, for, for the American people. So I assume that that's precisely what's going to happen as soon as we are able to get back on our feet here and get back uh, between the lines playing this game we love. Um, I, I think America and, and the whole entire world is going to take a deep breath and say, here we go again, you know, let's get back on our feet and get it going. Hey, there's nothing wrong with you going into that room with all that memorabilia. You earned it. You had a terrific career, and you're doing a great job. We love watching you, MLB Network, and then, of course, bringing you back here to the A's family. Thank you so much for the time. Be safe with you and your family. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Chris. As you can see, you get me talking baseball, I can't stop yapping, man. I love this game. Thank you for having me, man. You're the best. <laughs> Take care, Chris. I could talk baseball with that guy all day long. I could talk baseball with this guy all day long. And truly, when you talk about someone who's special on and off the field, that's Liam Hendricks. Liam Hendricks and his wife, what they do for people, what they do for animals, this guy is salt to the earth. I absolutely love him. And what he does for people, it's pretty amazing. Here is my conversation with the A's closer, the all-star, Liam Hendricks. Well, it is always great to have him back on the program here on A's Cast Live. He is your all-star closer, Liam Hendricks. And once again, Liam is doing so much for people. What this guy does away from the field is absolutely unbelievable. He's a friend of the program, and it's just going to be good to hear his voice. Liam, how are you? I'm doing good. How about you guys? Uh, we're, we're, we're hanging in there. And that's kind of the one thing that we've really, since we started the show back up, is to get people on familiar voices for the fan base. I think they really appreciate hearing Ray Fossey or Ken Korak or yourself. It's just familiarity. I think it's really good for the fans to hear you. Yeah, they've got a bit better of a uh, radio voice than I do, but I, I'll try and put my hat in the ring. Well, what you and your wife do, it's truly incredible, and you guys don't stop. And yesterday, helping out Oakland police officers with lunch, and now Alameda County Police today. When did you guys decide, hey, we need to reach out, we need to help back here in the Bay Area? I mean, we've been looking at trying to do something for a little bit, but um, we realized when we contacted the A's about getting it all figured out, they were saying that we're going, they were going into the hospitals and, and giving them food and stuff like that. So like, okay, we're going to, uh, we're going to take, take the same approach. But we're going to do it to an area that not as many people are thinking of. And that was the, uh, the police departments. And my wife has a kind of a connection with that being a daughter and a granddaughter of law enforcement. And so it's something that we feel pretty strongly about. We dealt with the uh, the OPD and the Alameda Police Department last year a little bit, just through some of the crazy times we had. And so we just there's faces that we are familiar with, and we want to make sure that we take care of the people that take care of us. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many people that are out there right now putting their lives on the line to help protect all of us, and not only from the people working in the hospitals, uh, but also the people that, 
you know, people are driving ambulances and the firemen and the police officers. You know what these what these men and women are doing for us right now is so special. And it just truly shows their dedication when they made that dedication. Hey, we're going to try and help people. That's our job. It's, it's just it's so valiant what they are doing. Yeah, I mean, without a doubt. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people out there that are in the background of uh, keeping everybody safe, making sure that society doesn't crumble. I mean, everyone's on a lockdown, but there's still cases that go on. There's still people calling 911. There's still emergencies that happen. So these people need to be readily and available. And I mean, you look at some of the people coming out of retirement and volunteering their time just to make sure that everyone's staying safe and making sure that there's enough going around for what everyone, anyone needs. You know, when was it? that you and your wife, your wife, Christy, decided that, you know, we're going to use this platform that you have as a major league baseball player to not only help humans, also to help pets. When, 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 when did that decision come down for you two? I mean, it's been a long time since we've, we've always wanted to do something, but we, because of the way my career tracked for the first several years, we were up and down. We weren't really solidified anywhere. And so it's really hard to kind of make an impact when you're shuttling up and down and doing this and do, going from different organizations to different organizations. So once we got settled in Oakland after a while, once I got through kind of that first full year, we started really thinking about what we could do off the field and who we could impact. And we've always had a heart for animals. We've always had a heart for kind of making people feel like this. we're, we're actually people. We're not above anybody else. We're just regular people trying to do as much as we can for a community that we're in. And no doubt, once you start, as you say, you solidify your career and you start doing what you're doing, and then now you're an all-star, I mean, thank God that happened for you because that helped your platform get bigger. Without a doubt. I mean, that's the biggest thing about, or the best thing about having any sort of success on the field for me is it it amplifies what we're doing off the field. So all of a sudden, with what we've been able to do, we've had a lot of, a lot of different people reach out about what we've done because of seeing me in the All-Star game or seeing the success I had last year, seeing the success the A's had last year, and just reaching out and being like, hey, look, I'm going through something similar. It's been really nice hearing the fact that you like that you and your wife are speaking so candidly about being bullied in high school and certain things like that. And then not only that, we're raising, being able to raise some money for some of the animals with with all of a sudden, we're able to post about animal, like Tony LaRusso's Animal Rescue Foundation or players with pits out of Chicago, and all of a sudden they get an influx of donations or an influx of calls wanting to foster. It's just seeing that has been, has been very, very rewarding, and more so than actually playing in the All-Star game. Having that recognition about that has really pushed forward everything we've been doing off the field. You know, speaking of rewarding, I remember talking to Tony LaRusso about, like, when he first started ARF, to where it is today. It's truly amazing how much it has grown. How about for your projects from when you started them to where they are today? What has that been like to watch them grow? Oh, it's been unbelievable. I mean, obviously you look at uh, Tony's kind of the way it started all with him was a, it was a, a Coliseum cat and that kind of waked into warped himself into his heart and all of a sudden he starts a rescue foundation. So it's just those little things that are, that are the, uh, the butterfly effect that kind of spawns everything, the ripple effect. But, uh, yeah, it's been it's been really cool watching what we've been able to do with all of a sudden people reaching out, people doing interviews in the strikeout bowling shows, or people hearing the fact that I'm doing something with animals and reaching out to certain places. It's been it's been really really cool watching everything grow. Like we were with players with pits from the get go in 2014, and they have just watching them expand, watching the 
the kind of the amount of animals they're able to help out increase every single year based on not barely what we're, me and Christy are doing. It's a lot of the or what Stephanie's doing who runs it. But it's just being able to see everything kind of grow and have your little handprint in there and being able to kind of just help out in any way we can has been it's been really really rewarding and obviously we have now seven animals so it's uh we have our own little part in helping the uh the, the adopt own shot calls as well how how are the animals doing in lockdown they've been good i think the, the cats are really kind of pissed off the fact that we're home all the time because they don't get as much running around time <laughs> the dogs are the dogs love it because one i'm at home i just sit on like i like to sit on the couch I like to read and so my dog just decides to she would just sit there for hours on end while I'm reading. And Jack, Christy, well, we have separate dogs. I mean, Stella's mine. Jack's pretty much is Christy's. And they're the family dogs, but they have their owners. And Jack's all excited because he gets to go on walks twice a day. Like, it's it's been pretty cool. We're actually fostering uh, Luella right now, who we're, we're calling Lulu. She had a broken leg that we got fixed the other day. And she's been uh, enjoying life with us because she's now in a cast, unfortunately. But... She gets all the attention. She gets all the snacks, and she gets uh, she gets to sit on the couch and just kind of be a very very lazy dog while it all while it all heals. And hopefully, she'll be running around here shortly. You know, we've been doing a lot of walking with the kids and the dog, and I can tell now our dog Spencer will like look up and go, "We're going for another walk, really, really." <laughs> yeah, it's um at the start of the start of it all when we started getting the leashes out, Stella would be all about it, and Jack was all all about it. Now you pull them out and they're kind of like, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I, a little sore from yesterday's workout. Let's take a day. <laughs> I think about how much major league baseball players travel. And then I think about you, how much you travel, especially when you go back home to Australia, what is it like, you know, uh, not being on planes and not going to hotels and that's gotta be very different for me. You. You're spending a lot more time at home than probably you have in a long, long time. Yeah, it's been weird. I think uh, I'm actually starting to get an imprint in the bed, um, which doesn't usually happen because my side of the bed's vacant for half the season. So it's uh, it's been weird in that regard, but it's been nice being able to home. Like I I can't remember the last time where I have been at home and able to make like a sandwich for myself because usually I'm going to the field and getting food there or I'm on the road and I'm having to get it out of the hotel or anything like that. Like I just made like a really nice salami sandwich on some multi-grain bread. And it's just, it's, it, it brought me back to home. Like I was making it. I told my wife, like, Hey, look, this is, this is the way Omar used to make it. My, uh, my dad's mom. And it's just, we're, we're getting a little reminiscent about all these things. Yeah. And, and we haven't talked to you in a while. And obviously with what's going on around the world, we've kind of lost sight on what was going on in Australia with those horrific fires. How are things in Australia right now? Uh, last I heard they were doing, they were doing a lot better. There was um, in late January, early February, they still had about 50 fires burning. But then the rain came a little bit and helped kind of uh, tamp that all down, which is good. The, tam- the rain came, the winds died down. It helped a lot. And then obviously they're starting to recover and everything happens now. But there's, um, there's a lot of like, it, it's some very tough times back home just for, uh, for everything kind of back to back. It's like when you get knocked off your surfboard and you get hit by another wave when you're already under. But um, it's, Australia is very, a very resilient country. A very, um, they're used to being able to kind of take a hit and bouncing back. And, and I, I don't doubt that this will be another one of those occasions. But uh, right now, I think everyone's kind of making sure that 
where they're at currently is, is doing well and improving. And as soon as everyone improves and kind of gets back to normal life, it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see the landscape of how everything goes. You know, we've always appreciated your time. When you come on, you're very generous with your time with us here on A's cast live and, and what you do, so many different things that you and your wife do. It's very, very special. And to help these police officers, who are out there, you know, whether there's a virus or not, they're always putting their lives on the line. So to help them out and just, just. Appreciate them more is, is one of the biggest tragedies around is think they need protection or not, whether they, whatever their stance is on anything, they're going out there no matter what. And it's just a tribute to a tribute to what uh, the society is. I mean, we're uh, as baseball players, we all appreciate the security guys that are out there protecting not only like the bullpens, the dugouts, the wives, the the family section. It's just it's there's nothing we can do that is ever going to be enough. And I just want to make sure that they know that we appreciate them more than they know. And hopefully, uh, this will just be a little step in the right direction about making sure they feel that way. Yeah, I used to say all the time that uh, you know. When you call 911, Derek Jeter's not showing up. It's a police officer. They're the real heroes. Hey, thank you so much for the time. Be safe, and I can't wait to get this thing going again. And and I can tell you this. I know for A's fans, it, it was just great hearing your voice once again. So be safe, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, man. If you ever need me, just let me know. Liam Hendricks and his wife, they're good people. And I wish we had more people like him. He is a special, special man. And it's great that he is an Oakland athletic. You know, my next guest is a guy that I grew up watching. He's one of my favorite players of all time, Bip Roberts. And Bip does a great job doing A's pre- and post-game live. And we always like having him on, the former All-Star in Oakland's own. Here's Bip Roberts. The great Bip Roberts joins us. Bipster, how you hanging in there? <laughs> hey, man. No, I never hit many home runs, but I love the game and – I love talking to Townie. What's up, man? Well, we were just t- on this day in 1989, King Griffey Jr. made his debut against the Athletics and Dave Stewart. And his very first at bat, he ripped right. a double off the left field wall. And I was just talking about, you know, King Griffey playing center field and led the league in home runs four times. Bip, when you play a premium position and you're that good on offense, that's why you're such a special player, and that's why you walk right into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. No one ever questioned that kid, huh? <laughs> that's legitimate superstar. You know, it's funny when you say that first hit. I remember talking to Dave Stewart because, you know, we all work together now. We get a chance yeah. to talk and compare stories. And he was talking about how when he faced Kenny that first time, how Kenny just was so quick to the baseball. And he was just like, wow. You know, looking like, wait a minute, this kid can't turn my stuff around like that. But he was he was seeing something special that day. You know, it was when you come in and get a hit against a guy like Dave Stewart, your your first for your first big league hit, that, that does say a lot about who you are and who you can become. And wow, wow, what a ride, huh? What a great player. 
Well, and we're talking 1989. This is this is the the height of the A's empire. I mean, you're talking about future Hall of Famers. You're talking about MVPs. You're talking about All Stars. I mean, this A's team will go on to win the World Series. They had played in the World Series the year before against the Dodgers. Dave Stewart's a star, and you go up there in your first at bat and rip a double at the Coliseum on a team that's star studded like that. That's incredible. Well, Tony, you, you talk about a tremendous talent. You know, we and, and not to say that Kenny didn't work his butt off, because he really did, but, man, you know, when we use that term blue blood, it doesn't matter who's facing you. you you're you going to get the best of them. And, and, you know, Kenny was one of those blue bloods at the time. And, and, and just to add, you know, Roberto Alomar and these guys were all starting to come through. These were all juniors and blue bloods from, from great major league fathers. And, it was a good time to see these guys grow up and just blossom. So, yeah, it, it, Kenny was special, man. And, and I, was, I had a chance to, uh, you know, play against him and talk with him and get to enjoy his company. And, you know, that's something I, I will always cherish. But what, what a great kid. And that was his nickname, the kid, you know. Yeah, and I think because we you're a Warriors fan, so we've talked a lot about Klay Thompson and Steph Curry and the pedigree and growing up in NBA locker rooms. And you think mm-hmm. about, like, Barry Bonds did that in San Francisco with his dad. I mean, the stories of Barry shagging balls of Willie Mays or King Griffey Jr. growing up in the clubhouse of the Big Red Machine. What kind of advantage do you think a guy has? And we now have all these kids with the Blue Jays who, who grew up in Major League Baseball, what kind of advantage does that give you as a young athlete when you grew up with it? I think it's just you're born with it, and you're kind of taken off where the last talent ended. You know, they, they're getting it younger. They're getting things coming to them easier, younger than maybe what the, the previous uh, generation had, previous father or grandfather it seemed like each generation got better and better when you look at that. Cause you know, I always look at Sandy and Roberto cause I was close to them in San Diego and Sandy was a great player. Sandy junior was a great player. Roberto was a hall of fame player. You know, it was just like, Whoa, man. And when you watched the talent, you would just were like their head and shoulders above everyone. But you know, there are some special guys that come along born to play the game and you see that. But these guys, no matter who they faced, they were always the dominant players. And that was on every level. And you could always see it. So when you looked at these guys and you, and you had that eye test, you could just see that they were head and shoulders above. And whether they were already born into it, they had a, a, a different attitude because they were, they were always around the game, like you say, in the clubhouse with guys who were – their idols and who were the best players in the world. And they were getting tips and playing with these guys. And it started to feel like these, these superstar guys are just normal people. And I think when you get a chance to start, you're around other kids of, you know, ball players, you, you go out and you compete and you play and you develop confidence. And you say, whoa, I'm, I'm already competing against some of the best. And it's just a confidence thing. And, you know, it's, it's the seed that grows. And that seed usually grows a little stronger than the first one. And, and, I, and we've seen it many times. I, I'm so glad you brought up Sandy. You know, we, we had him on the program down in Las Vegas when the A's were taking on the Indians as he was filling in for Terry Francona. 
And it's kind of laughable to think about it now. Sandy Alomar Jr. was technically the second best catcher in all of baseball behind Benito Santiago, who you also know. And he's playing in Las Vegas for the Las Vegas Stars. And he's sitting in AAA for years. And he's the second best catcher in baseball. It's crazy to think about that, Bip. Yeah, that 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 San Diego Padre organization was loaded then. And I mean, you had Benito, you had Sandy, you had Roberto, and you had Joey Cora. You had around just about every position, two or three guys. And it was tough to crack that twenty-five. So, um, at that time, Benito was the fastest in the West. And there was nothing you can do about that. Had one rookie of the year, and it was always in big league camp. It was Benito and Sandy, and we all knew Benito was going to be the guy, and Sandy would probably go back to AAA, but he should be in the big leagues. That was always the big but. But he should be in the big leagues. And we played together Sandy's second year in AAA. Or was it his first? I think it was his first year in AAA. And we ended up winning the, uh, the championship in the PCL. And it just wasn't room because Benito was there for Sandy. So Sandy had to end up going over to Cleveland. And um, the rest of his history, he's had, he had a great career. Yeah, no doubt about it. And they, they had some really good teams with the Indians. It's surprised they never won the World Series. They got close, but they never won the World Series. Uh, right now, if, if you were playing, what would Bip Roberts do – to stay in shape, knowing that at some point, hopefully we're going to get a season going here. Wow, Tony. <laughs> I mean, I, I like to say that I, I've been on strike before, but never for a reason like this. And I don't know. Hopefully I would be locked up in a cage somewhere, getting some swings and trying to stay ready or hanging with the family and just enjoying this time. But uh, for the most part, you'd have to make the best of it. But as a baseball player, it's just strange territory to sit at home right now and doing nothing. You're supposed to stay in the house. I mean, unless you have the right facilities, there's not much you can do. So I would just kind of be hoping that the powers that be, especially our uh, our organization, our, our Players Association, would make sure that whatever happens, they make sure they, they think about us first and make sure we get ourselves ready so that, you know, we can get on the field. But I don't know, man. What can you do? You can you can run in the house. You can do sit-ups and push-ups. You, if you have a weight room, you can do whatever. But not everybody's uh, not everybody probably has that, that opportunity. So, man, it's just tough, Tony. I, I don't know what I would be doing. But I hope that I'd make sure I was at least at least I was in physical good shape. At least I'd get my runs in at least. Well, I think for hitters and pitchers, it's different, and it's going to take longer for pitchers. I, I don't, I don't think for you, like in the prime of your career, it would take a long time for you to get ready to go. Right, right. I, I was ready ten days in the spring training, so it doesn't take it didn't take much. But you know, for some guys, they 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 may look a little older right now or something like that. You just don't know. Everybody's different. Everybody's DNA is different. So. I think that this makes sure when we do come back, if we come back, I don't know what's going to happen. Does anybody know? You know, that make sure guys are, are ready to go. And this kind of opens up. I mean, we know who the powerhouse teams are, 
But wouldn't you mm-hmm. say this opens up for, you know, a darling to come out of nowhere and surprise some people if you're doing a shortened season? Yeah, anything could happen. You know, County in the minor leagues, they had two separate seasons, one half yeah. and then another. Sometimes that team that, that jumped out there won that half, and, and they weren't the best team in the league at that time. But things happen. You, you don't know until you play the game. So that would be interesting. And it would just be something that, again, 2020 has been a weird year. And, um, geez, I wish I could rewind it and start over. But as we go forward, you know, <laughs> you might want to be prepared for anything to happen. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think about young pitching. As much as we want to baby young pitching, it's something I've been asking everybody, Bip, is, you know, especially when I look at the A's, when you have Jesus Lazardo and you have A.J. Puck, and you're worried about their innings. Well, now in a shortened season, I don't think you're going to be worrying about their innings anymore. And I think that's going to play well for the A's. What do you think? Well, you 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 hope they've turned that corner to where they get these funny injuries that last and they have to have surgery. So, yeah, you still have to be careful. Like you said at the beginning, it's different for pitchers. So whatever the program is, I hope they, they've continued it and they didn't stop because all those guys are healthy and they look ready to go. And so if they're ready, healthy, strong, the way they were looking, then I, I'd get them out there, you know, when the season starts. I'd let them go. I, but as long as they stay on their programs and every, everything's on point. Now, if you get some, some little nagging injuries or whatever, then, you know, you have to pitch them accordingly. But these are young, strong boys. Get them out there. Let's see what they got. Because right now, if they're young and strong like this, Tony, and you were, you were a guy who could, you know, get out there and mix it up with the hitters, you know how you feel, and you know what your body's capable of. And, and if you're controlling your own destiny, why not control it? I think if, if they're out there and they're doing their job, I think Bob Melvin will give them that opportunity to, to see how far they can go. You know, one thing about being a switch hitter, and it really mm-hmm. fascinates me because people don't think about it. It's two different swings. You know, if you're a yeah. right-handed hitter or a left-handed hitter, you got one swing. When you're a switch hitter, You've got two swings, and it's always fascinated me to talk to switch hitters about how you maintain each swing. Is each swing the same? Is it different? Talk about what you did as a switch hitter. Well, I worked on that tee an awful lot. I made sure that from both sides of the plate, I had plate coverage on whatever pitch may come across the plate, whether it be inside, down the middle, or away. I worked on certain approaches on both sides. I always felt I was uh, evenly. I, I thought I was an even hitter on both sides until maybe later in my career I was more dominant left-handed. But for the most part, yeah, it may be two different swings from two different sides, but in both of those swings there's a lot of different swings because you have to be ready for whatever pitch may come across the plate. So where most guys are just worried about, Stand inside the ball on one side of the plate. We've got to stand inside the ball on both sides of the plate. Whereas you may be on the left side, a more low ball hitter. On the right side, you could be more of a high ball hitter. So you got to understand your zones a little more. And, you know, when you get that pitch or when you make that swing, it, it's got to be perfect because, again, you don't get many chances to, to – to, you, you don't get your pitch – when you get your pitch, you have to make sure that that swing is ready for that pitch. And so that's as a switch hitter from both sides of the plate, <clears throat> using one approach 
it usually helps both sides of the plate. So working with Tony Gwynn, and he always said, do what you do best. If you could have one approach from both sides of the plate, that meant you kept it simple and you could do your best. You know, that's crazy to think that, like, the left side, you're a low ball hitter. The right side, you like it more up. You think it would be equal on both sides, but it's not. Well, then you think about which eye is dominant. I was a right-handed hitter. So my right eye was dominant, and I could seem like I could see pitches better. I could track pitches better. Whereas on the right side, from the left side, I'd have to take a pitch or two to see exactly what I was trying to do at the plate because lefties were a little more creative on the mound. Or it, it seemed because the, the left eye wasn't as dominant as the right eye. Even though it seemed both eyes were the same when I would take an eye test. But when you go from one side to the other, if you've been on the left side all day and then your last at bat you go to the right side, that's when the eyes kind of, you got to get adjusted again. So that's a that's an adjustment that most hitters don't have to make, but you have to make it because that's what your job is as a switch hitter. You have to be consistent on both sides. So, yeah, it's different. And, you know, it's like certain pitches I could hit well on the left side, but on the right side, that's not the pitch I want to hit. I didn't want to hit down and in on the right side. I wanted to hit middle end on the right side, drive it the other way, or catch a breaking ball and drive it to the gap. So, again, you got to know what your swing can do. And then when you get the pitches, you got to execute. So it's just about keeping balance on both sides. All right, let's end on this, Bip, as there's going to be a lot of baseball players who are going to be practicing by themselves or just another person. And I think at this point, your practice net would be perfect for kids who are still trying to stay in shape for the baseball season. Tell them about your net and, and where they can get it. County, that's a great lead-in, and you're absolutely correct because with the cutoff man by Teammate Sports, what we did was develop a net that you can actually play catch with, throw it into a net, into a target, and instead of going in and picking up those balls, you can actually just pick the bucket up and just keep your, your, your drills going. And so it's, a, it's a, a cutoff man where you can move it around. You can do your feeds in the backyard right now. If you're an outfielder, you can hit the cutoff man. Um, if you're a second baseman, you can actually throw across the backyard as if you're throwing to a first baseman. So you can move it around. And, and, and for right now, it's perfect because if you have to be alone and, and you have your kid with you or, and you guys are working out, you can do it in your backyard and you can get a lot of work in. So this might be a good time to work on those little things when it comes to the defensive side of baseball. Bip, you're the best. Be safe and we'll talk to you soon. All right, Tony, you stay safe, man. Stay safe and healthy. Ah, the Bipster. <laughs> he was a good player, man. I loved watching Bip Roberts play. And, of course, every single Wednesday on A's Cast Live, we got to have the face of the franchise, Ray Fossey. we got to check in. How was Fossey doing during these times? Here is the face of the franchise. Wednesday is known as hump day for everyone during the work week. But on A's Cast Live, Wednesday means one thing. It's time for 30 uninterrupted minutes with the two-time World Series champion, two-time All-Star, two-time Rawlings Gold Glove winner, A's analyst on NBC California, and the face of the franchise, Ray Fossey. Ray, how are you? Tell me. I am doing well, my friend. How you doing? How's Cody doing? 
Uh, we're doing okay. And, 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 you know, Bob Nightingale, oh, no, 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 no. Richard Justice from MLB.com came out with an article of the top 10 things you're missing right now from baseball. And you know what I miss, Ray? I miss seeing you. I miss talking to you. I miss seeing you. I miss Ray Fossey. Well, I miss you too, Tony. You know, you, you, what you do down on the field, you know, people – should understand that what you do down on the field prior to every home game, you're down there with Cody, you've got your crew, you're ready to go, you're bringing guys over from the A's, from the visiting teams, and you're talking baseball. I, I miss that too, and, and it's going to come back. We're going to be back, but I, I miss that as well, and uh, I, I appreciate you saying that, but I agree 100% that that is something that talking baseball, especially this time of the year, is something that everybody misses. And, again, I hope we get back sooner than later. And I like some of the prospects that have been happening since we last talked last Wednesday. Uh, but we also lost a couple of fine gentlemen in this game, which I'm sure you're planning to talk about uh, before this segment is over. Yeah, Al Kaline, you know, I got to meet him when I was with you guys in Detroit. It, it's a great story. I, I think you might remember it where Al came in and introduced himself. Like, yes. Like, it's like, you don't need to introduce yourself. You're out, Kaline. You're Mr. Tiger. And then told me to get baseballs, and yeah. he would sign them for us for our community fund. And I remember going down to Steve Vucinich, and I'm like, you're not going to believe this, but Al Kaline wants to sign <laughs> baseballs for us. And so yeah. Vuce got me a bunch of baseballs. And, I mean, who does that? I've never – I've never. what what famous star athlete walks into a, 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 a press box – to someone he has no idea who the heck I am. He says, young man, go get me some baseballs. I want to do yeah. this for your guys' charity. And that, that, that tells you everything you need to know about Mr. Tiger. Tony, I was thinking that exact same thing when he passed away, unfortunately, uh, earlier, well, Monday this week. And I was thinking about you being in that booth and seeing him walk in and say that. But that says it all about Al Kaline. I've known him. Uh, I mean, going back to, I think it was 1972, I may have said it before, but that's how far I go back because that was towards the end of his career. He played in the 68 World Series, the World Championship. And even that, a great story by John Lowe, talked about that World Series. He had been hurt in 68. And he came back and he said humbly, I don't deserve to play in the World Series. But Mickey Stanley moved from the outfield to shortstop where they only played some eight games. Al Kaline played right field, which he has done. He did his whole career, as a matter of fact. And then – ends up being a hero on the World Series, the only world championship he had. But, Tony, there was never, ever anybody nicer than Al Kaline. And I specifically remember that incident. I'm glad you brought it up because had you thought I was going to. But that was just the humbleness of Al Kaline. You know, he had a suite down to the left of the A's broadcast booth. If you remember, he would sit with Al, Al Avila. Uh, and I say that stumbling because um, his son, Alex Avila, changed it to Avila because Avila was too hard to pronounce. But Avila, the general manager of the Tigers, in his suite, they actually put up a, a some sort of a um, – almost like a curtain so that people couldn't see in. But Al Kaline would go in that booth during the game, watch the baseball game. Can you imagine all the history that Al Kaline had playing the great game of baseball and being part of the Tigers his entire career and, and entire life, basically, starting out as a 20-, 18-year-old out of high school and being in the Tigers organization. And I thought it was interesting, too, Tony, that the statue in center field, a great hitter, 3,000-plus hits, and a great hitter, but this, the statue depicts him as an outfielder. 
a tremendous outfielder, winning gold gloves. He had a tremendously strong arm. He started his career or in high school as a pitcher, but because he had had some ailment uh, and because of his accuracy, he, be, he, he wanted to be a pitcher because that figured that could be the position. But his coach moved him to the outfield because of his strong arm and accuracy of his arm. And that's what I remember about him playing right field at Old Tiger Stadium and making those strong throws to third base to prevent a runner from taking the extra base. But for him to leave that booth at, Tiger, at Comerica Park, come out in the hallway, come into the A's radio broadcast booth, I mean, that was special. But that says as much about Al Kaline as you could want. But, you know, in 72, Tony, I'll tell you how – I mean, this was like my, my third year in Major League Baseball, and Carol and I, maybe even 71, we went to Puerto Rico to play in the American Airlines Astro Deck Golf Tournament, and it was uh, 16 baseball, 16 football players, and we teamed up depending on the city where we played. But I'll never, ever forget getting off the airplane in, in Puerto Rico, and there's Louise and Al Kaline waiting for the luggage he introduced himself, who I knew because I'd been behind the plate when he'd, he'd been hitting. But he introduced himself. He says, hey, we're going to the airport. You want to ride with us? And I went, wow. I get to ride with the Al-Kay line. And I'll never forget his wife, Louise, a wonderful lady, saying, oh, you young people. Because Cheryl and I had only been married a couple of years, and we'd only been in baseball for a couple of years. But she said, oh, to see the youthfulness of, of these kids. And now here we are all these years later. He passes away, and I'm saying the same thing. But, Tony, there was nobody nicer. And I have to say this, too. Uh, I don't mean to, to go on, but I, I just – so many things I remember. In 1971, the late Billy Martin managed the, the Detroit Tigers and Al Kaline's final years with the Tigers. But 71, I'll tell you how much he was respected. We're playing in Cleveland, and our pitcher, unfortunately, for the Indians, could not throw strikes. He's dropped down the sidearm, kept knocking guys down. And remember, these were players – in 71, who had won the world championship in 68. And let's not forget, there was no free agency, no movement. You were owned by the baseball team that you played for. If they traded you, you had no recourse. And basically, so we're, we're playing this team. But our pitcher had knocked down a couple of guys unintentionally. I mean, just dropped down and the ball is close to them and they're hitting the dirt. And as our K-line came to the plate, I said this little silent prayer. Dear Lord, don't let them hit the franchise. And unfortunately... <laughs> Unfortunately, here comes this pitch, and it low bridges out K-line. He goes down on the ground. Clowney, I was helping him up. I'm dusting him off because I knew here's the Tiger franchise. And unbeknownst to me in the dugout, Billy Martin respected this man so much, and evidently that was the final straw because he told Bill Dennehy to hit the first batter, and unfortunately I was the first batter. He hit me in the rib cage, and before I could hit the ground, my feet were moving. I charged the mound. But it was a result of Al Kaline being knocked down, again, unintentionally, but the respect and the admiration that Billy Martin had for Al Kaline, that was the final straw. I wish I would have known. I could have maybe prepared for it. But, uh, you know, it was just one of those things. I knew I was intentionally hit. I charged the mound. But it was a result of Mr. Tiger, unfortunately, being low-bridged unintentionally. But can you imagine, Tony, here's a visiting catcher helping a guy up and dusted him off because you know what the ramifications are going to be. Well, I suffered it, and, uh, uh, I mean, it was just one of those things. But, you know, a tremendous, tremendous person, a great friend, and he will be sorely missed by everybody in baseball. And I know the Tiger fans are, are just going to be un just besides themselves when the season does resume and people go back to Comerica Park 
and they realized number six. And Tony, you know, my boyhood idol uh, was Stan Musial. He wore number six. I did not know until last year when I said to Al Kaline, what was the significance of number six? He said, Stan Musial. Oh, I, I said, you got to be kidding me. That was my boyhood idol. He says, I admired that man so much. I wanted to wear number six, and that number is retired forever by the Detroit Tigers. Well, speaking of somebody you know real well, you know, Foss, we've been uh, previewing all these different teams. We started with the NL West. We're now on the NL Central, and today was the the franchise you grew up loving, the St. Louis Cardinals. We had Mike Shannon on. Talk about a oh, baseball wow. legend. He talked about playing high school football and baseball with Stan Musial's son, and then, of course, wow. he comes up, and he's playing with Stan Musial. And when Stan Musial tired, you know, Stan Musial is still a really good player, but Stan said, hey, listen, when, when, when kids are coming up who played with your kids, it's time to retire. <laughs> oh, man. Tony, do you think the history of this great game, there will ever be another player who had the same number of hits at home as he did on the road? No. Stan Musial is the only player in the history of this great game that has ever done that. I don't think they'll ever be matched. I really don't. I mean, you talk about Cal Ripken's record, but how about that record of the number of hits that he uh, amassed over his great career? But I, I grew up, I mean, I, I grew up in Southern Illinois, and every chance I got it to go to watch the Cardinals play at Old Sportsman's Park, which, you know, I've, I've said many times, that was the first park, Sportsman's Park. It had the Eagles in the outfield on the scoreboard that when a Cardinal hit a home run, the Eagles would fly, and, and it was just I could still see them going from one part of the school board across to the other after a Cardinal hit a home run, and Sam Musial hit many of those. But, uh, no, he was a great, great man. But, you know, how about Mike Shannon? He lives down uh, south of where I grew up in Marion, Illinois. Uh, I think it's Lake, Lake, Lake Egypt, I think it is. But, but he lives there. He only does home games. He may have told you this. I don't want to be repeating, you know, what he told you. But, but one of the classic – uh, walk-offs, and we, we talk about when the Cardinals are on the road and Mike Shannon was doing games, a guy would hit a home run, and he'd simply say, we'll be back tomorrow. And that's it. <laughs> it it's the game. That was his call for this walk-off home run or walk-off hit, we'll see you tomorrow. And that was it. He'd be done. He'd walk out of the booth, you know. But he he's a classic. And I enjoyed seeing him uh, last year. We went into St. Louis, and John Rooney and he worked together, and and, and Tony, the great thing about Mike Shannon, when they built a new Cardinal Stadium, which they're playing in right now, it's be Bush Three. Uh, they when when he when they were constructing the, the stadium and the broadcast booth, you talk about having some power. That is like a suite of rooms at a hotel. Their broadcast booth. They have the area where they broadcast, but then behind that, they have a round table. They have sofas. They have refrigerator i mean it's unbelievable but evidently when they were constructing the stadium uh mike shannon would go in and said you know what not big enough move that wall farther so they kept moving it farther and farther to the point that radio and tv for the visiting side we have no room i mean that's there's definitely no social distancing in that that stadium but uh shannon a great guy and i'm glad he talked about staying usual because there is nobody greater in the st louis area and Stan, the man Musial, and he got the nickname the man for those of who those are people who may not know. But in Brooklyn, every time he would go in to play the Brooklyn Dodgers, fans would say, "Well, here comes the man again," because he he did so well against the Dodgers that they nicknamed him Stan, the man Musial, and of course that that stuck with him his entire career. 
You know, I'm thinking about now, I actually know somebody who's in the St. Louis Hall of Fame. Yeah, I know. Thank you. That's <laughs> and you? you talk about, yes, and you, you talk about somebody proud to be enshrined in that Hall of Fame along with, I mean, he's there. Obviously, Stan Musial is there uh, along with Cooperstown. But for me to be inducted as I was last February, a year ago this February, uh, into the St. Louis Hall of Fame, that was, that was quite an honor. And as the, the finishing of uh, – actually, it was done quite well, Tony, instead of an exception speech. I mean, these were various uh, sports dignitaries from all over, especially uh, the St. Louis area, southern Illinois, which I grew up in. And, um, you know, players, whether it be football, basketball, baseball, who had played in that area. But it was like an interview session. So maybe about 30 minutes I was interviewed. But as we closed it out – I made mention that this meant so much because of Stan Musial, who I grew up watching and idolizing. And uh, now I'm there with him as part of the St. Louis Hall of Fame. So thank you, you know, for mentioning that. Yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, and then we lost Ed Farmer, who longtime yeah. broadcaster, yeah. player, uh, was a success story with, with, with his transplant. And yeah. I got to interview him multiple times. Uh, and, and that's it's a tough one for for White Sox fans. Well, and you know he was a teammate of mine when we were at Cleveland together, Tony. And uh, so, and I've known Eddie while well, I knew him his whole life, or you know as long as we had been together, starting out in Cleveland Indians organization, and then he went on to Chicago, have the success. And how great is it for someone who have grown up on the South Side of Chicago, and then ended up playing for the White Sox, becoming a closer and, a, and an All Star? and then to broadcast almost three decades for his favorite team and win the World Series as they did in 2005, and he's behind the microphone. Tony, he could eat, too. We called him Eating Ed Farmer, and we said it lovingly because he knew he could eat. And in Tucson, where we had spring training down at High Corbett Field, there was a restaurant called the OK Corral. Uh, Jim Lason and his wife owned the restaurant, and we would, all the players, it was like Pinnacle Peak up in, in the Scottsdale area, which no longer is here in the uh, Scottsdale area, but the OK Corral was a steak place. And uh, Nikki, who was our oldest daughter, we would take her in her little bassinet or uh, our, our carrier and put her down while we went to have dinner. She'd go to sleep and we'd stay we'd out there. But Ed Farmer, can you imagine that 32-ounce steak? It was called the Cowboy. He would wow. eat two. Two! <laughs> two 32-ounce steaks. And he says, what else you got? I'm still hungry. I'm going, give me a break. But such a nice guy. And, and you know, Tony, when, when the White Sox, we talk about the Tigers and now K-Line, and in both in the Central Division, when the White Sox do return, Ed Farmer loved and was loved by everybody. Jerry Reinsdorf called uh, Buddy Bell. Buddy worked for Jerry uh, Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox. And he worked for him. Buddy ended up going to Cincinnati where he went back home. But he got a call from Jerry Reinsdorf, Buddy did, saying that Ed Farmer's not in good shape. And then Buddy called me. So I kind of knew, unfortunately, uh, in advance of the announcement of his death. But he, I mean, so you have the owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, and you go all the way down. There was not one person in that stadium that now, I still call it Comiskey Park. It's, it's some naming rights. But I could just see the love of the concessionaires, the ticket takers, uh, security guards. There was not one person in that place that Eddie did not acknowledge and they did not acknowledge him. So it's going to be hard for those people. And let's hope they get back to work sooner than later, just because they need to work. 
but I think the most important thing too that when it is announced and they they have a moment of silence for Ed Farmer that all those people are going to be shedding a tear for one of the great ones who was a Chicago White Sox legend and, and there forever. Well, let's talk about something positive. April yeah, 4th was that. your birthday. Happy birthday, Ray. Thank you. And also, also my 50th playing anniversary. Let's not forget that, you know. So, you know, that that I was smart. I got married on my birthday, Tony. So, uh, you know, people say, well, that's good. And say, how did you get married on April the 4th with baseball? And I said, because we didn't open until the 7th of April then. And now this season was supposed to open on April or March the 26th. But, yes, it was my birthday. It was a special time and uh, to have the family. And, unfortunately, we're going to celebrate later because Lindsay, our youngest daughter's anniversary, is on the, or was on the 5th of April, one day after. So, um, you know, and the two grandsons, uh, Matthew and Joseph, were both born in, in March. Madeline and Abigail, our two granddaughters, one was born in, in April. Her birthday, Madeline's coming up April 17th. And uh, Abigail born on Christmas Day two years ago. So, Special times, but, uh, you know, the, the important thing, and talk about positive, let's get baseball back. And I, I think it's going to get back, and I think we're going to see some exciting baseball once it does come back because the, the one thing of all the great and unfortunate incidents that have happened in America, the one constant has been baseball coming back. And as the field of dreams uh, that uh, when um, – I can't remember the actor um, – but he said, baseball, Ray, baseball. And I've seen that movie a hundred times, if not more. And it's baseball that is really the, the great thing about America is the game of baseball. And nothing against any other sport, nothing against everything that's happening in this country and in this world with regard to the virus that is uh, taking place. But baseball is, is one way to bring it back. Because, Tony, you know the thing about baseball, and I think – one of the reasons that people, you know, we all grow up playing. You were a pitcher in college and, and you played baseball. But, you know, you could probably remember growing up and looking at the player that you idolized, in my case, Stan Musial. I'm saying I could play this game. We all grow up thinking that we can play the game of baseball because we all played it as a young kid. Maybe we're not good golfers, maybe not good tennis players, maybe didn't get the size to be football players or being able to jump and, and play basketball. I couldn't walk, much less skate on, you know, to play hockey, because so that sport was never part of me. But baseball is one that we all think that we can play, and that's why it's great to see the generations of fans that come out. And, and, and you know, you know, missing baseball, I miss the fans. I miss the fans that call it fans because they're the best fans there ever have been, the Oakland A's fans. But, you know, you, you think about those fans who come out. You have a father. You have a son. But then the father has his father there. So you have the grandfather, the father, and the son. So these generations of fans who come out and watch their favorite players and their team play, in this case, the Oakland A's, I think it's tremendous. But I, I do believe that we all at one time or another saw, hey, baseball, I can play this game. But it's a tough game. It, it still is a tough game. But all of us grew up, and I'm sure you did, thinking that I can play this game, and you did. You had success, and you had your, your, uh, your grandfather who played in Major League Baseball. So I, I'm sure you did, as, as I and many, many others, thinking that we could play the game of baseball. I was fortunate to spend time in the big leagues and even more fortunate to be right here talking to you right now. You know, when I, when I, when I think about entertaining people at this point, uh, do, you, do you know you're going to be on TV tonight? Uh, no. What am I doing? Uh, you will be calling uh, Mike Fires no hitter against the Cincinnati Reds. Oh, beautiful. That's great. That's great. 
You know, and, and I think that, I think that's why. Not to interrupt you, but but I think that's the great thing about the baseball. And I, I talked to Matt Pearl with the A's, and going to be trying to do some things with the 72, 73, 74 World Series. And I think that's great that people are going to be able to relive that. And you know, Townie, it's been as long as it has been. There are going to be many people watching those World Series games and saying. Wow, this game's pretty good because they weren't born there during that time. And if they were, they were too young to remember. And so I think that's what's great about the history of the game of baseball with so much great past history that people, they want the live events. They want the live baseball game. But in the meantime, they can watch games like Mike Fires pitch and no-hitter. That game that – how about that, County? The lights went out. They, what, they laid it about an hour and 45 minutes in that yeah, game that, that Fires pitch and no-hitter. <clears throat> We, we we honored Dick Callahan that day, too. That's right. That's right. The great Dick Callahan. I can't wait to hear his voice again. And uh, But, but yeah, for that, that no-hitter against Cincinnati and see Mike Fires, they almost canceled the game because the lights wouldn't come on. They finally – can you imagine somebody going up that power pole, that big light standard? <laughs> I, would, I would never do that. You know, but here we have the game, and, and uh, Laureano makes the great catch in center field with Joey Votto. I mean, you know, just so many great things. And then he pitches a no-hitter. And, you know, he's a rarefied company, you know, to have multiple no-hitters on your resume. And Mike Fires and the A's had Homer Bailey and Mike Fires on the same team in 2019 that both had pitched two no-hitters. So that was a major accomplishment by those pitchers. And then, of course, they have Sean Manaya on the team as well. And Dallas Braden down below had pitched a perfect game. So, you know, those, those are rare things, but they're great. And, oh, by the way, I saw today – that this would have been the 74th birthday of the great Jim Catfish Hunter, who also pitched the perfect game in 1968 against the Minnesota Twins at the Coliseum. And one of those rare perfect games to be thrown by a major league pitcher. And I had the opportunity, and, and I'm sure his games are going to be shown as pitching the 72, 3, and 4 World Series and, and just a tremendous person. But, you know, Tony, I, I think it's great that, that uh, the A's and I know NBC Sports California doing those things playing those games and i think it's great for people to sit back in these tough times and say we can watch baseball we know the outcome but we can still watch some great baseball being played yeah i'm, I'm glad you brought that up and uh, that you said it because I, I haven't been able to really talk about that yet um they've wanted me to hold off but i'm glad you brought it up we are going to be honoring you guys and I, I i'm in that boat foss i was born in 1972 so i was born the year of the first world series and i'm not i'm not a guy that that lies you know a lot of people in my business act like they they know everything because i've had people go up and go hey tony you remember when they won I, no i was, I was <laughs> a baby the first the first year for me sports that when i look back because i i kind of saw it through my kids eyes you know my kids don't remember stuff when they're three years years old uh, the first year i really remember sports was 1979 that's when the uh the pirates beat the orioles yeah. the, the steelers exactly. beat the rams and then the next year my first super bowl party ever was uh raiders being the eagles so it's like for me having read the books the last dynasty uh the charlie finley yeah. book that's how I've learned about your teams. I'm really excited to watch these games because, for me, I've only seen highlights. To be able to see games yeah. from the 70s is going to be – I mean, just watching – I mean, watch the Bunky D Bucky Dent game recently. Um, you know, I've been watching these old-school games. It's going to be great because – who do we have on – it was Tim Kirchin we had on on Monday, and we were talking about your teams. Like, like people don't remember – 
how legit you guys were. You won three yeah. in a row and you took down the you took down the Reds, you took down the Dodgers, you took down the Mets. You took down some really good teams. Tony, first of all, I apologize for letting that out of the bag because I, I you know, but but I the, the thing that I'm most appreciative of is that those teams are being recognized because unfortunately we start thinking about the most recent things that have happened in the game. But there's some great history of this game of baseball. And I'm proud to say I was part of two of those championships and to, to be a part of those and to know that when we went to the park, we felt we were going to win every game. And that's a special feeling to have. But those teams were legit. They, yeah, I agree with you, legit. And, and you know, <laughs> Catfish Hunter, who I mentioned birthday, when Catfish Hunter went to the Yankees in 75, had Tatfish not gone to the Yankees, had he been a part of that team in 75, we won the division but lost to the Red Sox to three straight. But, I, you know, I'm a believer that if Catfish is still on that team and nothing against Vida or Kenny Holtzman or John Blumen Odom and anybody who pitched for the A's in 75, but Catfish Hunter was the guy that we depended on that had that first game. And who knows how many, how many teams or how many world championships the A's could have won if those teams had stayed together. But uh, it, it was a lot of fun, and I'm glad they're doing it. I'm glad there's – you know, it, it, it is kind of sad that what we're going through, but on the positive side, there's so many great things that people can really see, and it's the past history, the great history, this great game of baseball, and to be a part and to have the A's doing some of those things and NBC Sports California doing the things. You know, the great Monty Moore, and I talked to Cody, and I think he's going to be on with you sometime – the fact that in those World Series that Monty Moore broadcast 19 games in those three World Series, four and a half innings of each game, he broadcast those. So he was a part. That's when NBC at the time did the World Series. They would bring in the announcers from the teams participating in the World Series. So here's the great Monty Moore being able to, to do that. And he said to me, he said, Ray, he said, I, I thought you played in game six and seven. You didn't start. I said, no, I didn't because we were down three games to two. And that's when Darren Johnson had joined the club. He had been the DH, but because there was no DH at the time in the World Series, that he played first base, Gene Tennis caught, and Joe Rudy played in left field. And then I came in defensively in the end of both six and seven. So I was on the field with the championships. But, you know, Monty Moore was great. And, and he broadcast, and can you imagine being a part I, I can only envision now that being a broadcaster and being part of the World Series that your team is participating in, because who knows the team better than their own broadcasters? And that's, Monty told me that in between innings, Kurt Gowdy would say, oh, what about Campy Campaneris? And, and Monty would give him some information in between innings about Campy, something that was not in the informational packet that these broadcasters give when they're uh, broadcasting postseason. So, you know, I think that's great. I think what you're doing, what Cody – been in contact with him, talking to some of these great players who played on those teams, not only with the A's, but maybe hopefully some of the visiting players as well. I think it's going to be tremendous to relive some of those great teams at the A's. And you can think about the history of this great Oakland A's franchise, 50-plus years. How many teams can say they've had four world championships during that period of time? Not many. You know, one of my favorite Monty Moore moments, I don't remember what year this was, but he's in the booth with you. What I do remember is it's the Pirates and the A's, and they're both wearing – it's like it's like a Saturday. It was like a late, like a 5 o'clock start, and the Pirates are wearing their, their old school all black. The A's are yeah. wearing all gold, 
and I think it was Kurt Suzuki hits the home run, yeah. and Monty Moore started ringing his dinger bell, and you went <laughs> ballistic. It was one of the great TV moments. I mean, that 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 A's team stunk, but it was. I don't. Do you remember what year that was? No, but I, I do remember specifically because Glenn Kuyper, and I give him credit because he said, "Listen, we have Monty Moore, Monty." Come down. You're going to do an inning of play-by-play. And just, you know, he started – he had this dinger. He was the one that brought out in the 70s during those periods of uh, winning the dinger. And, County, can you imagine 50,000 people at the Coliseum? That's when the upper deck was open and the whole center field, that was a whole different situation. And people would literally bring out cowbells. And Monty said, well, there's another dinger. And Monty in that game that you're referencing had this huge dinger. I mean, it's like the – the, uh, the Philadelphia bell, you know, and, but I mean, this thing was huge and he started to talking about the dinger and that's when Kurt Suzuki hit the home run. And I said, Monty, you couldn't have scripted this even more perfectly than what you just did. So he started ringing that dinger and he said, there's a home run. There's a dinger by Kurt Suzuki. And yes, I went ballistic because it was just, it was perfect, but you know, it, it took Glenn Kuyper being unselfish to the point of saying, Monty here, Let's go do the play-by-play. And because, you know, the, the people say, ah, you know, you can be on here, but I'm going to do the play-by-play. But Glenn gave up the microphone for that inning, and it just so happened to be Kurt Suzuki hit the home run or hit a dinger, as Monty would say. I remember we had a doubleheader against the Kansas City Royals, and Catfish and Vida pitched. I think they were both shutouts. I don't think the Royals in the two games got more than three or four hits combined. But that was a game in which Monty said to the fans, bring the dingers out. And, man, you talk about a loud Coliseum. These great A's fans brought their dingers, and they were ringing those cowbells, dingers, whatever you want to call them, and that doubleheader. It was the loudest I've ever heard, but that was the inspiration, the, the beginning, our greatness of Monty Moore during those years of winning three consecutive world championships, Monty Moore behind the microphone. And let's not forget the great John Miller, who's now across the bay, he was a broadcaster in 74 during the World Series and went along with Monty Moore. So uh, great history of the athletics. But once again, I'm glad they're being brought back to life. People are going to enjoy them. And uh, let's not forget anything about the fact that the one thing, there's only two teams in the history of this great game of baseball that have won three consecutive world championships. The Oakland A's are one of them. So Yankees, of course, the other. But uh, the, the Oakland Athletics won three straight and it was, a, it was a thrill for me to be a part of those. Ray, you are the best. I miss you. Be safe, and we'll talk to you next Wednesday. Tony, back at you. And same to Cody. Guys are doing a great job. And, and I think this is tremendous what you're doing. And I know you probably have to go to break, but I'm going to say this in closing. What you're doing is keeping people informed about this great game of baseball. So I commend you. I commend Cody. I commend the Oakland A's and NBC Sports California for, for letting people realize that during these tough times, we're at home, but the one constant, Ray, is baseball. <laughs> watch, <laughs> watch Field of Dreams, and you know what I'm talking about. James <laughs> Earl Jones is who you're thinking James about. Earl Jones, thank you. I, I was just going to say that because it just came to my mind, but what a great, great job he did in that movie. But telling the, uh, the great – how about, you know, Shooters Joe Jackson, all those players who had passed and come out of the, the corn stalks and – and uh, Ray, baseball, and it's right. I mean, the guys get on me because they'll see me on the plane watching Field of Dreams and say, oh, you're watching a new movie, Ray. You know, I'm watching, Ray. Yeah, I'm watching it. But, no, it's a great movie. 
but it just says a lot about this great game of baseball because you think about this history and some of the great game, uh, great players who have played this game, and yes, there's a tremendous history of this game of baseball. Thank you, Tannis. Thank you for what you're doing, and to Cody, what you guys are doing, and the A's fans are very appreciative. Everybody's appreciative to hear what you're doing on A's Catch. You're the best. Be, be safe. You too, Tony. Best to you guys. Talk to you soon. Well, that's going to do it for A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. We want to thank Carlos Pena, Liam Hendricks, Bip Roberts, and Ray Fossey. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.